0: The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription.
1: Critical Mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach Critical Mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs
0: Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted
1: fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today.
2: Welcome to FinTech Insider Interviews with me, Chris Skinner, hosting this week's special focus on cybersecurity and hackers. I've met quite a few uh, people around the world so far who are focused on security and hacking, many of them converted. Individuals who used to defraud the banks and the banks' customers of millions, but are now helping the banks to protect themselves against such exposures. And we have two such individuals this week who are really experts in their field, Jamie Woodruff and Sergey Pavlovich. Uh, To begin with, we're going to have Jamie Woodruff, who recently spoke at the Financial Services Club, and is known as the ethical hacker. What that means is that he will be hired to try and find the vulnerabilities in your cybersecurity, and will point those out to you for a fee, rather than just doing it and stealing all your money, which is what most hackers want to do. So, um, Jamie's a really interesting guy. In fact, he failed to get any qualifications from school, but ended up going to, university by um, just really belligerent the professor um, to get a place at university. You will hear far more in this interview with Jamie. So uh, with no further ado, I'll introduce you to Jamie Woodruff, the ethical hacker. So I'm here with Jamie Woodruff, the ethical hacker, which uh, I guess raises the first question, what the hell is an ethical hacker?
1: Well, um, I'm a certified penetration testing engineer and a cyber essentials assessor as well. So it means I've got a strict code of ethics. So I'd sit an exam. You have to have uh, X amount of years behind you to show experience working within the industry in an, in an ethical manner. And it means that you, you just, you can't go hack anybody. You have to have written consent, verbal consent. you speak to your clients beforehand, and get contracts signed, penetration te- uh, testing authorization agreement. So yeah, that's, that's what it means to be ethical.
2: So. How did you get into it in the first place, Jamie? It's not the obvious career path of you know, an individual.
1: Yeah, well, I had kind of um, that weird kind of way into to the industry. I mean, I've, I've always hacked since I was nine. I've always been into cybersecurity. Yeah, I just went to school and, and IT was something that I was really wanted to, to to focus on. So all my overgrades slipped except my IT. I got an A story in that, which was really good. Then from, from school, I left there to go to college. Uh, I lasted three months in college because I found it too easy and wasn't challenging me. Um, so I left college and ended up working in the current industry, believe it or not, for, for a, a rather long time. And then just one day I decided that's not what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. So I wrote a, a bot that applied to all the universities in the UK on my behalf. So it went down Wikipedia, it looked for admissions, and it'd submit my resume per se, but even though I hadn't got any qualifications at that time, just pretty much begging me to, to get a placement within university. So I got a placement in a few universities, but one of them was promising, uh, a guy called Dr. Stephen Marriott from uh, Bangor University in North Wales, invited me for an interview. So I went into this interview and uh, he saw potential in me and it, it wasn't, he didn't really care for qualifications. He took me as uh, a mature student. So it was on their discretion that they used. And within university, two weeks later I started. So I'd, I'd left the current industry, went to university and I did computer information systems. And uh, basically, after about 3 or 4 months again i was finding it um, boring uh, not interesting it wasn't really what i wanted to do and i started to change my mind but i'd always quit things i'd never stuck at it so basically one day this, this uh, one of my friends says uh, would you like to come to a hackathon so i thought yeah proper hacking okay i'm still at university let's let's give this a try over the weekend So I went down to this hackathon at Southampton University and um, it was about building applications and it was boring. It wasn't what I thought was, was like hacking, you know, breaking into applications legally and ethically and it wasn't any of that stuff. And then this guy stood on stage, a guy called Simon Earl, um, and he said the best hacker, proper hacking of the weekend gets the CPT you paid for. So this is about £2,500. I could have never have afforded the certification. I couldn't have got back in at all from it. So I spent time over the weekend and I found vulnerabilities in several platforms and got awarded the um, certification um, to start training for it and then to sit the exam that he paid for as well. And then I went back to university and I had a purpose. So I decided, okay, that's what I wanted to do in uni. So I started a society. I started going more. I started turning up to my lectures. And then one day this this girl randomly um, says, would you like to speak at a conference uh, in London? So I was like, yeah, okay. I've never done it before, but let's give it a try. And... Um, Went down there and then Boris Johnson sat on stage with me and he's just talking away about cybersecurity, having no knowledge of it. And it was just amazing. That one thing turned into me going to Monaco, I'm traveling around the world, speaking at large organizations around the world for, for large conferences from NEMA to risk conferences to financial asset management conferences. And then my unique aspect on security was you have, you have different fields. It's like in a doctorate, let's say you have neurologists that focus on that kind of um, speciality. Then you have like a dermatologist that's focused on those. With cybersecurity, it's the same thing you have to know a whole broad range of knowledge to be able to function within the cybersecurity industry. And I'd primarily focused on social engineering, which was uh, human manipulation. So making people do something that they wouldn't normally do, but without them actually knowing or interpreting it. So that could be from warranty exploitation. So people getting free TVs from ringing up or free Rolexes or anything under $10,000, uh, pretty much free in five to 10 minutes. So teaching people how to prevent that within training methods. And then from there, just travelling around at conferences, I took a year out of university. I'm not gone back yet because uh, I've been rather busy starting a business and it's just gone live. So yeah, that's that's how I kind of got into cybersecurity, and and now I'm 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 known for my uh, wicked fields with social engineering. So turning up as a pizza boy—that's the big one. Yeah.
2: So uh, it's an intriguing story, and I guess um in in summary, where you are now is that companies can hire your services to see if they are um. Protected, basically, and, and and where the vulnerabilities are, if there are any.
1: Yeah, I mean, we the, the way that we kind of perceive it as well is there's, there's a rather lacking training that I find in all industries. So we, uh, me and my business partners sat together and we decided, okay, well, look at the cybersecurity industry that's forever forever changing. You know, you've got fridges now that are launching attacks against websites. Like, how could that actually happen? Light bulbs that can take down your business online. So we, we sat down and we come up with, with training, recruitment, and pen testing, which was free unique services. And obviously the training aspect is the biggest one that's the way forward. And we find that end users, so people that have been in industry a long period of time, they tend to get treated less within that industry. So low-level employees, for say. So I, I like to use an analogy. Um, so imagine you're, you're in Tesco or, or, or another supermarket and you're paying for your product. And then the lady turns around to you and she says, uh, sorry, they don't have any carrier bags. And then you say, okay. Well, the fact that she subliminally used the word they and not we shows that she doesn't want to work there. If she said we never have any carry bags, we're sorry. She treats it as a family entity. You know, she wants to work there. She loves it. She's probably a higher level management employee. Um, but the fact that she said there, she can be exploited. She's working nine till five to pay the bills for her kids. She probably has some kind of way in or she has some kind of way in that you can find within a short period of time. And that's what you find in industry is the the low-level employees are supposed to be the first line of defense and your last line of defense. However, industry doesn't treat it like that. So that's what we want to kind of change things.
2: So have you ever worked with a bank, and what sort of things have you worked with on banks?
1: Yeah, so I've, I've worked with financial institutions in the past, and, and to be honest, the majority of stuff that I work with is legacy systems. So it's stuff from maybe the 1980s and 1990s, counting machines. Um, I can't really – it's cobalt machines is another example. A lot of stuff still runs cobalt. That was before I was even born. So, But that's what you find. And, and, and I mean, a really good fact is from 2013 is 95% of ATM machines still run Windows XP. And, and Windows XP is not no longer supported anymore. But the way that they treat it is, well, it works, so why should we re-implement it? If you look at the air traffic industry, uh, international national air traffic control, the aerospace industry, there's there was a conference that I went to and I was talking to an individual, and um, there's two people alive that can service this special machine that they really, really need. So in the next five years, they're trying to replace that machine. Because obviously, if there's only two people alive that know how to use it and how to maintain it and how to build it, what happens if, from a critical perspective, if that goes wrong? So, but you find this a lot in, in, in all kind of industries, is limited knowledge within kind of progressing forward. The way that we're evolving as a society, technology is evolving at such a fast rate, but we're not keeping up with that, if, if that makes sense. So you've got people like, say, my grandfather and my mother that refuse to do online banking because they're scared about it. Well, they shouldn't be scared about it, but they should have knowledge about how to protect themselves. And you find within industry, there's no kind of methodology out there at all or any training methodology that teaches the end users how to protect themselves. It's all about uh, the media always say that cybersecurity is bad. That That's how we see it and that's how we perceive it. We see... Hackers with anonymous masks on, as a prime example, always all on the media, but not how to protect yourself or how to prevent that type of intrusion. So,
2: so I think one of the things you illustrate well in your talks is that. Um the idea that it's some guy who's got an anonymous mask over in Russia or China is going to hack your personal computer is not really the main threat. It's the guy next, uh, you know, a stranger who you, you, you distrust because yeah. because they're wearing the right uniform or something.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it could be anyone. And I use this analogy a lot. I was, I was giving a, a couple of talks in Norway in November and basically I went on stage with a hoodie on and some shorts and I was just stood there and everyone's like silent and I'm not talking. And I give it about five minutes, and I said, well, this is what you perceive a hacker. You know, you look at someone like me, and you automatically think they're a guy in a basement that's taking down the world. That's not the case. You know, this is a hacker, and then got some people to stand on stage with suits on, different kind of uniforms. I mean, if... It's not the case of where you can actually single somebody out, you know, via, via how they look or how they dress. It could be anything. It could be an employee that's worked in upper management for a long period of time, but you've undercut him on a bonus. He could be a disgruntled cybersecurity guy. You find it before in, in industries, people have worked there for 10, 15 years in IT, but they have no knowledge of, of what they're actually doing. They just keep paying them every single year because they just leave them to one side. And that could be a disgruntled individual within the business. So...
2: And you give a good example of um, the pizza boy th- experience. What, what was that?
1: So there was a large financial institution that paid for me to get into a specific. So if, if we look at a financial institution, you have departments. So they paid for me to get into a specific department and get into the server room. So it wasn't the whole entire entity. It was one individual um, with several employees and how to gain access. So what I did was is uh, every day I'd sit there um, from 9 till 5, and I'd order a coffee in the cafe downstairs, and I'd just watch employees all, all the way. Uh, All all throughout the day and I'd work out who's friendly with who, who talks to who, what time do people come, what time do people go, when conferences are on because there's a large amount of people. And I'd just build this routine and make notes in my book. And then every Friday i noticed this pizza guy would come deliver pizza and um, I was like, okay, well it's the same time pretty much every week. The security guy buzzes him in, he walks straight past and straight into the building. So everybody else has to use a pass but he just goes straight through. So I went to the pizza place and applied to be a delivery boy, got accepted which was quite easy actually. And then, uh, yeah, a few days later I went, turned up as a pizza boy, walked straight in and uh, went to look at the server room, found the server room, spread the door with a luminol, uh, got my blue torch after a few hours of uh, going back and forth. Someone had punched the cord in and it doesn't matter what order you press it in, it's one of them keypad doors, so it's like one, two, three, four, five C twist or whatever. And so it doesn't matter what order it's pressed in, so I could see where the smudges had been, so what pins he'd pushed and then push them pins again and walk straight into the server. And then that was that's what defines me as being ethical. Was that was the end of my test. It paid for me to get into the server room, not to damage or remove equipment, or so.
2: Yeah, and the Illuminon is like the CSI X-ray thing that you can then sort of yeah, pick so ha- what's there afterwards.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you can look at like blood spatter and uh, saliva and stuff okay. like that. So, but it you, you kind of allows you to see it really clearly. Have you about.
2: ever failed to hack anything?
1: Um, no, because there's always a way in, you know, it's how persistent you are. It could be an employee's the way in, it could be they post as a job application online, so you apply to be in that role, get accepted, and then just walk out with their stuff. I mean, there's always a way in, you know, you've just got to sit down and plan it. And But the best majority of my attacks are improvised, you know, so it's it's spur of the moment. It's not a case of, it, it's the fact that I see something. So, for instance, um, I did a test recently for a company that turned over about 20, 25 million pounds, and... When they gave me a tour of their buildings a few weeks before, I noticed their alarm engineer um, pad was at the front door and who serviced the alarm. So I turned up with, I printed my own ID badges, turned up a few weeks later and said I'm from the alarm company. They just let me in and rummaged throughout the business. And I found the key for the safe. Um, I got into the server room. Um, I had all their files within two hours. So that's what they paid for me to do. So there was only one employee in that business that knew what I was truly there for. But everybody else knew I was the alarm engineer, so.
2: That's quite amazing. I mean, obviously, again, going back to the anonymous guy in sort of uh, a remote country, uh, and you did mention it earlier on, your business could be brought down by a light bulb that's on the internet. What's happening in that space? I mean, how how does that work?
1: So, I mean, if we look at at the standards, let's say if we look for, um, I don't know, Ofcom as a prime example, there's no standards for IoT devices such as like webcams and just little small devices we wouldn't think uh, are susceptible to attack. So baby monitors, fridges, light bulbs, uh, you know when you can just open the app up on your phone and just click turn off? Well, it's connected to a network, okay? So it's not gonna be, potentially not gonna be encrypted. Um, so in my talk that I'm giving today, 80% of devices from IoT are not encrypted. They run on an unencrypted network. Now, you imagine how many people actually change the passwords for them devices. Very few. So it could be username, admin, password, password, username, admin, password, admin, one, two, three, four. They're the most common ones you find on IoT devices, printers, as an example. So it's it's how they're connected to the network. So if you get compromised, they can then use them devices to run attacks against servers like distributed denial of service attacks to bring down web servers, database servers, numerous different devices. It's more focused around them uh, within the area. So.
2: Mm. And um, going back to how to protect ourselves, one of my favorite stories is the story of HB Gary, which is one of the big cybersecurity companies in America, where their head of uh, cyber intelligence got hacked because he used the same password on LinkedIn, as yeah. they use for their Google Docs company storage exactly. in, in, in information. So, you know, talking about how to protect ourselves, what, what are the key things you'd say we, we need to be aware of?
1: I mean, I, I can give you five to ten key things now, but probably one thing would be taken away. That's what we are like as a society. I always say, Okay, well you need to use a password that's at least above eight characters, that's uppercase, lowercase, and use asterisks, but who's gonna do that? You know? How many elderly individuals are gonna set a password like that? You know, my, my grandfather has a book of passwords because he's always forgetting them, but he's having to adjust to that modern era, so he's keeping it in there, but we know it's not secure. Well, Someone that's been around before technology would have a large amount of money because they they worked hard for it. They had they didn't have technology freely available that we had today. But I mean, just obviously keep your password above that eight characters. Uh, moving on wouldn't be uh, keep devices on yourself. So don't leave don't leave them lying around. A lot of uh, individuals leave stuff on trains, leave USB pens lying around, leave laptops, and they don't care about it because it's not their property. So, so they treat it like that, you know. And then just make sure your antivirus and your patches on your system are up to date all the time. Uh, make sure you've got a firewall. There's, there's a ton of things. But again, it's down to the fact if someone wants to hack you, they will hack you. You know. But what have you got to protect and how do you protect that individual asset? That's the best way I can, I can tell.
2: And I think based on my experience of talking about cybersecurity with yourself and other experts, don't be so trusting is the final thing, you know, because yeah. it's very easy to get ripped off.
1: Oh, yeah very very easy. A lot of way to, to gain confidence is via trusting individuals just communicating with them, building up a, a, I mean if, if we look at it for like this you, you're having a barbecue so you put it on Facebook you know you, you put who was around you at that time in the barbecue. you put your kids online on your Facebook so you know who they are you put your uh, mum and dad, your maiden name all your information is on Facebook because you want to te- you want to tell the world that you're doing well. It's all about egocentric that's what it's like. You know, I've just been to the gym today. Oh, I've just burned these calories. Everybody does that. Well, if I wanted to target you, I'd spend four days looking through all your profiles, your LinkedIn. I know roughly where you're going to be. I know where you're checking out all the time. I know what coffee shop you're going to be at. So you're an easy target. Mm -hmm. So make sure you keep yourself private online, yeah, because you'll protect your assets and you protect yourself. So.
2: There's a great website in Holland that's been shut down now, but it's called I'm Not At Home Now. And it exactly tracked all that about when people were out.
1: Believe it or not, there was an app that was under development for Google Glass where you could look at someone's face and then through facial recognition, it pulls up their LinkedIn profile. So you're in a bar and you meet a girl and then it tells you who they work for, how old she is. And just by looking at her in the face with, with the Google Glass.
2: Just found the killer app for Google Glass. (laughs) <laughs>
1: exactly, you know. But that's, that's, that's how we're going. And then they'll turn around and say, well, well, that's for, for, for some kind of uh, individual that struggles for facial recognition. So that's why we've implemented that app. But the real reason, it gets exploited by hackers. so
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess the final one, purely because it's intriguing from my side, is um, what's with the, the hacking a baby monitor? Why would you, people do that?
1: I have no idea. It's something that's been in the media under IoT devices at the moment. And a lot of hackers, um, individuals around the world are using it for blackmail. So what they'll do is they'll hack into a baby monitor as an example, um, send their parents some kind of worrying images or making some noise come out of the speakers, and then saying, look, these will get posted online of your child, and a lot of people are protected in that initial stage of obviously being like a newborn, and then they'll extract money from them, and then they'll move on to the next target, but these devices are on the network and can be seen. So through my demonstration today, we're going to use a website called Shodan, which basically means any device that's been indexed around the world, so anything from servers to large companies, institutions, any of their IT equipment, you just search for what you want and you will see an open target
2: instantly. So Shocking stuff, but um, intriguing at the same time. Thanks very much, Jamie. Thanks for that, Jamie. And now moving on to Sergei Pavlovich. Sergei is a Ukrainian Hacker who made millions during his teenage years in the 2000s by gaining credit card numbers and using different tactics to get the payments and products that credit cards could buy using a variety of techniques. In fact, at one point he was making millions and at least $100,000 a week in um, defrauded products and services. Unfortunately, he was caught by the authorities and then thrown into a Russian jail. For for 10 years and during those years wrote a book called How to Steal a Million which is soon to be published and I'm helping Sergey to publish that book because he's an intriguing character with an amazing story which I'm sure you will enjoy so let me introduce you now to Sergei Pavlovich the hacker who stole a million So I'm reading your book and um, what I find interesting to start with is when you were a carder, you started very young. So, how did you get into being a card hacker?
0: I I started um, the criminal way uh, when I was uh, 13 or 14. I can't remember, but it was 13 or 14 years old.
2: And what were you doing when you were so young in terms of... You were just playing on the internet, and you found you could get card details?
0: It was so named, uh, so-called staff carding. It's a type of uh, crime uh, when you uh, buy different goods in, in foreign web stores using some one credit card. Not yours, but some one credit card. I bought credit card numbers on different web forums Carders and hackers forums. The credit card numbers uh, uh, cost uh, very cheap, I think. In the wholesale bulk, uh, I paid uh, for it maybe $1 or less. $1 for one credit card number with all details. Social security number, uh, billing, uh, billing information, $1 or less. It's
2: very cheap. Doing this, you made a lot of money. You were making a hundred thousand dollars a month, I think, at one point.
0: My salary was, I think, one hundred thousand uh, a month, but not from the first steps. Uh, i I got one hundred thousand a month in two zero zero three and two zero zero four years. Uh, but um, at that time, I was a dump seller mostly. I was not a carder in, in, in that times, but I was a dump seller. One of the biggest dump sellers in the world
2: in that time. So how did the
0: police find you? Uh, when I was younger my drops or money mules, cash mules uh, in American uh, versions uh, they Sketched uh, into surveillance cameras in one shop where they're doing in-store in store carding in Belarus with fake credit cards. And so the surveillance ca- cameras sketched their faces, and also um, a personnel of this store know some of us, and uh, it was a fatal, uh, fatal, foolish mistake. Our main mistake was uh, to cart merchandise in the city where we live.
2: And was it the Americans who asked for your arrest or was it the uh, Minsk police? I was arrested by uh,
0: Belarusian authorities, not Americans. But uh, Americans uh, sent uh, to Belarus uh, some, uh, some papers from my American crime case, some episodes. From, uh, from my dump selling all over the world. Because uh, Belarusian authorities filed a suit against me only for guarding uh, merchandise in, uh, sto- in Belarusian stores. Stores, groceries, restaurants, uh, petrol stations. Uh, but Americans um, uh, made, uh, f- filed a complaint against me for dump selling all over the world.
2: And then I saw um, the conditions in Belarus jail were terrible. And you were jailed for 10 years.
0: If you read my book, uh, you can see that the conditions in Belarusian jails. And um, I can say in Russian jails too, uh, because it's one post-Soviet territory uh, space. And um, the conditions in all jails... Uh, in post-Soviet territory is uh, the same, I think. I, I know, and I think, and I know. Uh, but um, it's uh, very strange that in the 21st century we have, in the center of Europe, we have uh, so bad uh, conditions in jails and uh, penal colonies. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can show you some photos uh, for my book, for American, for English version of my book, and you can see yourself. I can't understand why and uh, and I can't do enough uh, and I can't do anything with it.
2: No, I was shocked reading uh, some of the chapters when you were describing what was going on because uh, it is a lot worse than I've expected.
0: But uh, but it's uh, true.
2: Yeah. When you came out of jail, you now uh, help mm-hmm. companies with their mm-hmm. internet security,
0: yes. Uh, yes, but uh, it isn't my uh, main uh, my main business. I know one man in America, Arkady Buch, he is a very famous lawyer in New York, and he founded the company CyberSec.org, And he tried to consult American companies and organizations. He hired some hackers, some Russian hackers and carders and for me and me too and uh, sometime I consult him what to do uh, if someone wanna steal money from someone bank account because uh, uh, his hackers uh, can, can tell the technical side of the process uh, how to bridge into a computer network. Uh, but uh, I can explain uh, to Arca and to to other companies how to steal money from someone bank account. I think it's a uh, social engineering
2: mostly. It's interesting, Sergey, in that um, I've spoken to several hackers and they say mm-hmm. the same as you that it's people trust people and then you can play that game.
0: Yes. Then I think the worst problem in bank security, in computer security, uh, is the user, because uh, we can uh, we can close all the holes in computer networks, but the, uh, but the easiest target is a user, uh, the men who are uh, in front of computer, and uh, if you can't. Uh, get an access to computer network uh, from internet, for example, you can attack the people, the computer user, and uh, you can fool him and he he will tell you all the password himself. It's the easiest target, it's a user. We have to be more paranoid when we use our sensitive information in the Internet. We must uh, choose the more hard uh, passwords uh, because, uh, for example, social network Vkontakte, uh, the analog of Facebook, Russian social network Vk- uh, Vkontakte, is a proof uh, very simple passwords. And this is the Uh, the worst thing uh, the simple passwords and uh, one more worst thing is that um, user choose uh, the same password for different services it's a very big problem
2: absolutely, in terms of your book, where can people get your book?
0: people can read only Russian version now, uh, because the English translation of my book is ready and they haven't the uh, time to publish it. I tried. I tried to speak with it uh, on CNN, but CNN have uh, only some minutes for me for my conversation. I spent in Giles ten years. Ten years uh, from my sortie, uh, sortie 3. And uh, I wanna say that uh, I was wrong. It's uh, the carding. Uh, it was. A very wrong way, uh, but um, we were in the conditions where uh, the Soviet values uh, was destroyed. Uh, but uh, we have no startup incubators, uh, startup accelerators. We have no it yet, and we was on the cross. Uh, so uh, Soviet Union from one side, and uh, not not future uh, from different side, and we. We choose. Uh, we found a wrong way, wrong path. Uh, but uh, the crime, it uh, it isn't right way for uh, for any young man who clever enough uh, to make business over the internet. And uh, if the police uh, not catch you. You are the king, you have uh, a lot of money, you have uh, a very beautiful girls, sport cars, um, the rest on exotic islands, and uh, so on. Uh, when you got into prison, you understand that uh, if all your money was uh, deleted for uh, all months, uh, you should uh, to spend in prison. Uh, in my case, I understand that uh, it was only about $10,000 a month. And I understand that I can get $10,000 a month without any crime. I understand it. Uh, So, uh, I think uh, the crime isn't the right way for for any young, clever man.
2: But if you get lovely girls and fast cars, it's tempting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Спасибо. you too thanks Sergey and Jamie and thank you for listening I hope you enjoyed this week's FinTech Insider interviews and if you did then give us a good rating on iTunes subscribe to our podcast and friend us on Facebook and Twitter equally you can find me Chris Skinner at thefinancer.com and also 11FS at FinTech Insiders so look forward to speaking with you hearing from you and getting your views over the next few weeks and hope you have a great time cheers for now bye